Thank you, Rob. Pastor Rob. Painting that picture so vividly for us. Wow. Where to start? We've come this far. I feel like I get to put in my little piece here. Is that all right? Okay. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 4 if you have your Bibles and you'd like to turn there. <clears throat> Forgive my raspiness. How many of you can't sleep on, on the night before Easter? Anybody else can't? I got up at 2.30. Just the eyes open. I thought too much going on in there. Thinking about things and got up and wrote myself some notes. Wrote down a list of names, people to pray for. And I thought these thoughts, and I'll share them with you. This is what goes on my head at 3 o'clock in the morning. We don't need clever messages, we need truth. It comes from the heart of a man who has been in the presence of God Almighty. One who has seen the high and lofty one, conversed with him, and come out to tell about it. I thought about the twelve apostles, the early ones. Did they sleep much that night? The other disciples, there were a lot of disciples of Jesus when he was crucified, right? We have the testimony of 1 Corinthians 15 that said that he was seen by hundreds and at one time 500 in one place. So we know he had a lot of disciples. We tend to focus on those 12 apostle guys and 11 had to replace one. The other disciples, there were many. What were they doing with their thoughts and their responses to the horrendous affair that had derailed any hopes built around a new kingdom on earth. What were they doing? What were they thinking? Then I went on to remember that these twelve, we tell them the twelve apostles, and there are lots of apostles, but we focused there. But they've literally turned the world right side up. And they were accused of turning the world upside down. But they were actually turning it right side up. And their testimony and their work and their martyrdom for the person of Jesus reached all the way to you and I today. The truth is still going on and on and on because in that first generation they were willing to give their everything for the person whom they knew to be the Savior and the Messiah. And then I wrote down these names and bear with me if I do a little name calling and this will end up on the internet. So they could chase me down. Just listen to these names and see if you recognize a few. Don Four, Jim Walden, Mike Fulmer, Bill Weaver, Mike Erickson, Eric Herger, Benjamin Anderson, Gene Smith, John Dunn, Alejandro Martinez, Alan Pontier, Cal Yingling, and I stopped. And then I did what you do when you're in Word, Microsoft. You, know, you just select them all and number them. And there were 12. And I thought, what will it take for these 12 
These are local pastors of various churches in our community. We're not on the list. I didn't put me on the list. <clears throat> and no, I won't be Jesus. <laughs> Just in case the thought came to your mind. I thought, what will it take for these 12 to turn their city upside down for Christ? What will it take for us together with other believers in this community to make the name of Jesus inescapable, to make the presence of our Savior unavoidable everywhere people go? Because that's what our, that's what our world needs. That's what our city needs. That's what people need. You know, when you think about needs all over the place, you can needs in schools and needs in, in business and needs in politics. And when we get together on May 5th for the National Day of Prayer in the evening, we'll be praying for all those segments of society and media and school and education and all these, you know, military and families and church. And we take these segments and we pray together at the National Day of Prayer. And I, I just know that the answer is Jesus, isn't it? The need is for a living Christ. Not a historical dead figure, but the one who was able to come out of the tomb. To be present everywhere people go. To be inescapable. How is that possible? Well, you're the body. We're it. I like that little verse. I've mentioned it lots of times. It says, Christ in you is the hope of glory. I elongated because I believe it says this, that Christ living out his life through you. When you say what we mentioned a while ago, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet it's not me that's living, it's Christ living in me. Right? And the life that I'm living now, I live by the very faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And it's by letting him live his life out through us, that God has the hope of being glorified in the earth. Christ in you is the hope of glory. And it doesn't take a lot, does it? Some of us, it takes a lot just to be kind. I mean, you've got to work at it, some of you, right? To be nice. You're not laughing. I'm in trouble here. Open a door. Kind gesture. I opened the door for a lady the other day and she stopped and said, you don't see this very often anymore. And I thought, I, 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 I was taken back in the moment and so my response was quick and I said, well, whenever I'm in the room you'll see it. Because it's, it's about loving people. It's about seeing Christ in others. It's about giving an open door, not just a physical one, but an open door for the witness of Jesus to come. And when somebody's taken back by your kindness in your neighborhood or on your job, or when you should be mad and you don't get mad, and they see a difference in you, that opens the door. Why are you different? You say, well, because the living Christ came into my life, transformed me. And now I'm a testimony of the resurrection of Jesus. And I don't live for myself anymore, but I live for him. And in living for him, I find I have to live for others. And Jesus said, if you want to be great in his kingdom, learn how to be the servant to everybody. You know, he didn't leave anybody out. He said, everybody. Be the servant of all. He washed his disciples' feet in John chapter 13. 
And then when he was done, and they didn't really say much as he went from one to the next and washed their feet. And when he put his towel away and his bowl down, he said, do you know what I've done to you? Nobody said anything. At least the, the gospel author didn't give us any response there. They just sort of, you know, it's that moment when you know the next person that speaks loses. <laughs> so nobody said anything. So you know what I've done to you? He said, today you call me Master and Lord. And you're right. That's my paraphrase. You call me Master and Lord. And it's true. I am. And yet I, your Master, have washed your feet. I have served you at the lowest place. And so you should go and do the same for others. Does anybody ever want to be great? I know you're slow to raise your hand, but I'll tell you that, and I'll confess to you that I actually said this to Peggy once, my perfect wife. I said, Peggy, I just want to be great. How do you be great? And it was a little heady in the moment. You know, I had visions of grandeur, being great. And then I remembered what Jesus said. I'm sure she helped me remember. Jesus said, the, you know, the others, they lord it over everybody when they're great. He said, but not so you. You learn how to come under. You learn how to serve others. And then you can be great in my kingdom. There is a lost world. There are people around us every day who are drowning in the sea of sin. And you're the only one that's got a life ring. You're the only one, maybe in their neighborhood, that has something to offer. Others will offer them whatever they have. Drugs, alcohol, escapes. You know, a better vacation, a car or some material item. They might even offer them friendship or a relationship of some kind. But it will not fulfill the one thing they need most. And that is a living Christ. I don't really know if I'm ever going to make it to Hebrews chapter 4. I just like talking to you this morning. Is that alright? Hope I'm doing okay. I'm enamored with Jesus today. It's still hard for me to believe how much he loves me. Does it overwhelm you at times to think that he loves you? That he loves you so much that he wouldn't let go of you. He searched you out, hunted you down, and then lavished himself upon you. Because he's so very selfish. God is jealous. The Bible says God is jealous. He's jealous for you. And I will get to Hebrews 4. Let's just go there. I'll just get there and get started. All right? Because it applies here. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11, 12, and 13. We actually skipped over this in going through Hebrews. I told Pastor Rob, I said, I'm going to go back and get to those three verses. Because we're trying to do the whole book, right? And I don't want to leave anything out. But listen to this. Let us therefore be diligent. To enter that rest. Lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. And is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. 
This is actually the second admonition or exhortation that comes in the book of Hebrews. The first one you can find right at the beginning of this chapter where you find these, I've underlined them all, they say, let us. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, 4 verse 1, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. And then by the time we get to verse 11, there's been a, a, a remembrance given of those in the wilderness to whom, the, in verse 2, it says the gospel was preached to them and to us as well. What's the gospel? The gospel simply is the good news that God wants to save us. And that for us in the New Testament period is that Jesus came, gave his life on the cross, went to the grave, and overcame it. And we celebrate that today. Why? Because he loves us, and that is good news. We can be forgiven. We can be redeemed. We are able to be reconciled in friendship and relationship with God the Father again. And we can have fellowship with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit on a daily basis without interruption and without hindrance, without any fear of penalty or punishment coming from Him. His grace, we sang about it this morning. Thank you, Robert. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Written by a slave trader. You've all seen the movie by now, but you may not have known the story before that. And you see that old man just with his bopping bucket down in the church, just thankful that God saved him. Amazing grace. But will we become grace users or will we be grace abusers? And that is a serious question. It's okay to use grace. You need it. But you don't want to abuse it, take advantage of it, and toss it around like it's some cheap gift. Let us be diligent, we're reminded, to not fall according to the example of those who in the wilderness heard the word. Look again at verse 2 if you would. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. God said, I'm going to take you out of Egypt. I'm going to take you into your promised land. I'm going to give you orchards you didn't till. I'm going to give you beds you didn't make. I'm going to give you houses you didn't build. I'm going to give you this whole country to live in. You know that Israel and the Jews have never taken full possession of all the geographic space that God promised them. To this day. They just never have. Go and read it in the Bible. Outline it. It gives all the dimensions. And you'll find out they never got every corner of what God said they could have. God promised them a rest, but they didn't mix faith with what they heard. And so what did they do? They wandered around for 40 years until they all died off. Literally littered the desert with corpses. Millions of them. As another generation was being raised up who would then enter the promised land. But they never took possession of the whole thing. And the story here in Hebrews chapter 4 is that because God said there was a rest that you could enter into and they didn't get into it, then there remains a rest for you and I today. It's still available. So should we pack our bags and move to Canaan? No. That, that promised rest, as has already been ministered on here, is to just not have to do it yourself. Not do your own works to be saved. Not try and do it your way. Be good enough. Keep all the rules. Try and make God happy. <laughs> that's, a, that's a vain thing right there. Because the Bible, the Bible tells us that our, our, on our best day, 
our righteousness is like a filthy rag. I just can't see showing up in heaven saying, God, here's this righteousness I brought to make you happy. This old filthy old dirty rag. He said, you couldn't do it, so he did it for us. And so there's a rest that we enter into by faith. We receive Christ into our life. We acknowledge that he's not on the cross. He's not in the tomb. He's alive forevermore. And he's willing to come as he said he would. He said, any heart that opens to me, I'll come in. My Father and I will come in. We'll set up camp there. We'll live inside of you. We'll build relationship with you personally. And that's what the world is dying to find out. That it's available. And the exhortation to us and this admonition from the writer of Hebrews is let us be diligent then to not fail the moment, to not fall like they did by unbelief. Let's take the word we've heard, mix it with faith and receive the promised rest. And it's more than just eternity in heaven. I'm looking forward to that because the only way you can look forward is to look forward. It's not behind us. We're going forward. Looking toward it. I'm, I'm... not wanting to get there early. Right? You hear about the preacher that said, Anybody who wants to go to heaven? They pulled a 45 out of the pulpit. Nobody really wanted to go at the moment. But the promised rest, of course, is eternity with God and restored relationship. But it's also a rest here where I can, I don't just kick back and do nothing, but I can sit in His grace and say, Jesus has done it for me. The work of Christ is enough for me. And it's enough for my neighbor. And it's enough for my brother. It's enough for my sister. It's enough for my aunts and uncles. It's enough for everybody in my family and more. It's enough for my friends and their friends and their families. And keep it going until it reaches the four corners of the earth. I have one in agreement. You know, if you've ever feared death or feared the hereafter, as it's referred to, you've lost a loved one and you're concerned about that. You know, because Jesus is alive, nothing can separate us. Nothing can separate Death can't even. Romans 8 says not even death can separate us from the love of God and those who know it. We have to mix what we hear. And it says here, the word of God. Now, this has been kind of hard for me because I've had to adjust my theology in the last couple of weeks on this one verse. And here's why. And maybe I'll I'll help you adjust yours just slightly. It says, for the word of God, the word is not capitalized. Have you noticed that? It's a little w. The word of God. What that, but the, the Greek behind that is rhema. It's a spoken word from God. <clears throat> I've often heard this referred to as the person of Jesus, the word of God. That's true. John chapter 1, the writer, John says, in the beginning was the word, capital W, meaning it's a, it's a name of God, capital W. In the beginning was the word, and the word, speaking of Jesus, the word was with God, right? And the word was God. And by the time you get to verse 14 of chapter 1 in John, it says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Right? 
And so we know that Jesus is the Word of God. He's the living Word of God. In fact, He is all of this alive right here. If it wasn't for Him being alive, this wouldn't be anything at all. And Jesus is the living Word. But in this passage, He says the Word of God is not talking about Jesus. It's talking about a rhema word. There's two words in the, in, that we use for the Word of God. One is logos. Some people say logos. That's fine. And that means the whole of the Bible, all of the written things that we have about God in the Word, the Logos of God, the written Word, the revelation that God has given us of Himself. But then, that's the whole book. But when you open it, and this one verse, like I read to you out of Galatians chapter 6, hey, by the cross, I'm crucified to the world, the world to me. When that comes alive and God speaks it to you, alive, that one verse, or a passage, or a chapter, or a whole story of someone's life, Whatever it is, when He brings it to life to you, it, it's now called the rhema word. It's an alive word. It's this one. The Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. By the way, it's not a two-edged sword. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. Get the sharpest one you can find. And it's sharper than that. It's alive. It's full of energy. In fact, the word behind this living is energeo, energase. It's where we get our word energy. The word of God is, has life in itself to do what God says it should do. Remember Isaiah 55, that prophecy says, My word will not return to me void. It will accomplish what I sent it to do. When God speaks, E.F. Hutton listens. That just kind of came to mind. When God speaks, He is the life giver. And that Word will go and work and work and work until it accomplishes what He sent it to do. And when you and I get a living Word from God, when He speaks to us, to you, individually, we sing this song, He walks with me, He talks with me, along life's narrow way. Had a narrow way lately? I've had a few narrow ways. You know, that's between the rock and the hard place. And when you go between the rock and the hard place, He's there with you and He's talking to you. And He wants to give you the rhema word. He wants to give you a living word. Not just a static, logos, you know, page-to-page filled Bible. He wants to lift the truth of this and put it into our lives so that it's alive and active. It's full of life. It's got its own energy. And it will bring me to that point of what He wants to do through me and through you. But we have to mix it with faith. We have to be diligent. Let's be diligent not to fall like they did in the wilderness because they didn't believe. Has God ever promised you something? Think about it for a minute. Do you have a prophetic word or promise that you just know God spoke to you? Maybe you're in a meeting. Maybe you're in a cell group. But maybe it was just a moment somebody read a passage and it was alive to you. It's like a neon light. Somebody plugged it in, flipped the switch, and you went, Ooh! We used to call it the aha word. Aha! Right? Because that's revelation. It's when the Holy Spirit lights it up for you. and says, this is for you. Might as well pen it, put your name on the outer envelope, seal it up, and hand it to you. And some of you have got those, right? You've got them right there in your Bible. You carry them right with the rest of the word. And the word that God speaks to us will never disagree with this logos. You know, 
It'll, it'll flow right together with this, this word, this written word. But when he brings it to life and lifts it and hands it to you, now you and I have to be diligent to mix it with faith. You say, God, you promised. Think of the Philippian jailer. What must I do to be saved? But I'm, I'm hoping you know the story. Acts chapter 16, I don't have time to talk about it. But nonetheless, he said, you know, men and brothers, what do I need to, get, what do, I need to do to get saved? He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And your oikos, your whole household. What did he do? She said, well, in that case, we're going to my house. And he took Paul, Silas home, washed their wounds from their beatings, cleaned them up, put ointment on them. And by the next day, the whole family was baptized. They're all believers in the house. He had to mix that word with faith. What do I need to do to be saved? He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll be saved in your whole house. So let's go get them all. I'll tell you what comes to mind is a February baptism in the lake of a family that this happened to here in Big Bear. Yeah. And I said, and the dad said, we have got to be baptized now. 11 o'clock at night. They lived near the lake in Boulder Bay. And I said, well, sir, you're the patriarch of the family. <laughs> and I'm a, I'll just run right down there within, kind of oversee. <laughs> and and seriously, I could drive you to their house right now. They don't they live within a mile of the church. And he marched his family down there and they all got saved and they all got baptized at eleven o'clock at night in Boulder Bay in February. That's faith. That's faith. Their testimony coming home. Laughing and joyful. I said, wasn't it warm? <laughs> and I was freezing. Just being out there. Let's be diligent to mix that word with faith. God said he'll save us. If we go and we do this, let's go do this. Because that word, when he speaks it to us, it's just quivering with life. It's just wanting to accomplish what he wants done. In Isaiah 55, we refer to that. It says it's like the, the snow that comes down and waters the earth and then returns. We call it the hydrologic cycle now, right? We know what it is. It goes like that, rains and evaporates. But in Isaiah 55, they probably weren't into all that. The farmers knew about it, but I don't know that they called it the hydrologic cycle in Isaiah 55. But God was making a point. Just the same way I water the earth and then the water returns up and comes and comes back and accomplishes what I sent it to do. So it is with my word. It's alive and it's active and it's powerful to work in you. Sharper. Listen, this is important. Sharper than a two-edged sword. Why is it sharper? I guess the easiest answer would be, I don't know. But let me explain it this way. It pierces even to the division of soul and spirit. You know, this is one of the big questions of life. Where does the soul end and the spirit begin? How do I know if I'm living a soulish life or a spirit life? You ever wonder? I mean, is there, is there really three parts of me? Body, soul, spirit? And there are. The Bible says so. We've got names for all of them. And uh, pneuma and suke and soma. And we've got all those Greek words we can use. But we're a triune being made in the image of God. So there's a place between soul and spirit. But you probably never find it. But the Word of God will. And when you read the Word, it will 
penetrate and go right down to the fine line between those two and help you understand. Are you living a spirit life or are you spirit living a soulish life? How many of you like country music? Oh, man, I knew your head would be up, brother. I know your favorite guy, too. A lot of country music really moves us, doesn't it? Some of you are going, no way, don't move me. It moves me out of the room. <laughs> and we like to joke around about the, you know, the back, backward masking was a big deal there for a while. But, you know, if you played records backwards, you get a different song. You remember that? Well, you do that with a country, country record. You know, the guy gets his truck back, gets his dog back, gets his wife back. <laughs> play the song backwards. A lot of country music, the reason it's so popular is because it's very soulish. It ministers to the soul man. A lot of it does. It speaks to that emotional side of us. You know? And, and so it goes so far. But you get some of those country singers move over the line into the spirit. They'll light you up. I got lit up at 3.30 this morning. Who sent me that one? Some Facebook thing was... I can't remember the, the person saying it now, but they say, How Great Thou Art. It's some country western big festival thing. Carrie. Carrie Underwood, thank you. And I'm crying at my desk at 3 o'clock in the morning because somebody put it on Facebook. <laughs> Click. <laughs> this one, my, that's like my favorite song of all time, How Great Thou Art. Woo. And when it's sung to the glory of God, you realize it's a spiritual thing, not a soulish thing. It's an element above. It's a, it's a fine line to find, though. But the Word of God will help you find it. It says so right here. Because it'll pierce. It'll go down. It'll separate between. It's like the sharpest object you can find. And it knows how to get between your soul and your spirit. And it'll help you live in the spirit. This will. But if we don't take this with us, what hope do we have? If we don't have a living word from God that He's spoken to us, we really don't have much hope in life. When we get in trouble, what are we looking to God for, usually? We want Him to speak to us. We want Him to say something to us. And it's fine with us if we're reading here in His written logos, and, and He lifts a piece out and says, this is what you've been looking for. And you know, early on in our following Jesus, and maybe you're still at this point, you know, you get up and you go, oh God, okay, one, two, three, here. And, you know, you just hope it doesn't land Jeremiah or something. <laughs> or some curse on Israel or whatever. You know, but even, even in that, God can work with his own word to guide and direct you to a specific verse. Right when you need it. We're saying, God, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble now. Either my mind or my situation, my life, my family, something's going wrong. And I need your help. I need to know that you care about this situation. I need something from you. And we go to his word and begin to read until we find that place where the neon light comes on. The Holy Spirit breathes it to us and says, now this word will carry you if you'll mix it with faith. If you'll believe what I'm saying to you, this will hold you fast. This will be an anchor for your soul, an anchor for your spirit. It will hold you until what I'm doing comes to pass. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. 
and there's no creature. Say, I'm a creature. Come on, say, I'm a creature. creature. There's no creature, right, that's hidden from his sight. You know, you can lie to yourself. You can fool yourself, can't you? You can fool your neighbors. Might even fool your husband or your wife for a while. But you can never pull one over on God. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. mind if I find one more thing to tell you? John chapter 8. It's good that you said yes. Thank you. Because I skipped four other things to get to this one. And if you had said no, I'd have given you all five. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. John 8 verse 24. Listen to this now. Therefore, Jesus is speaking, therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. That's pretty open. And they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I've been saying to you from the beginning. Who are you? I'm telling you, you're gonna, if you don't believe that I'm he then you're going to die in your sin. Well, who are you? Now, if you've got a study Bible, you might even find this in yours. Mine mine has a little footnote right there. It says that I should go look up. It says verse 24b. Now go down here and find 24b. It says I should go look up something. Excuse me, 25. I'm going to use 25a. Anybody else have that? You think I'm pulling your leg, huh? It's true. It's a study Bible. It helps us. 25a says, go look at John 4.26. So I flip over to John, and I realize I'm in the story of the woman at the well. And he's telling her, God's a spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Verse 25, she says, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who's called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. This is a really important sentence that's coming up right here. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus removed any doubt with this sentence. When we got it, he's saying, I am the Messiah. I am the anointed one. That's what they wait for, the anointed one. That's what Messiah means. The one who would be anointed to save. Hosanna, God save us. And in this intimate conversation, which I'm sure she's just as amazed as, as you and I are, that she made the scriptures, and this her life story's been read all over the world, even today. She says, well, when the Messiah comes, the one they call the Christ, the anointed one, he'll tell us everything. I'm him. Now, Jesus is either the old proverbial, he's either the liar, he's a lunatic, or he is the Lord. I choose number three. He's the Lord. He's not lying. He's not crazy. He said, I am. And he's telling them in John chapter 8. Is that where we were? 
I said to you, you'll die in your sins. Here's the word of the Lord. He's speaking like Hebrews 4.12. He's giving a living word to these guys. He's speaking the word of God. He's giving them the gospel as you're getting it here this morning. And as we hear it from time to time in lots of places. If you don't believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Did you realize Jesus left no other options for us? On the planet, anywhere on the planet, not just here this morning, anywhere on the planet, he left no options. He said, if you don't believe I'm the one, then you will die in your sins. This is a living word from God. This is a sharper than a two-edged sword word. Because with that cleavage that it can make, it will carve some right into heaven and some right into hell forever. And the only way to get cleaved in is to believe. When they said to Jesus, what is the work of God and we'll do them. He said, the work of God is to believe on the one he sent. That's it. And to believe on the one he sent, that means I get to enter into the rest. That means I can't do it myself. I don't have to work at it. But I should be diligent about believing it. I should be diligent about mixing faith when God speaks to me from his word and to live that out. It costs me the rest of my life to live out this faith. But getting in is free. I don't want to die in my sins. You know, there, there are some of us, um, maybe not in this room, I'd hope not in this room, but it's possible, that like to kind of play with this fire. It's like, well, I'll believe today and I won't believe next week. And I'll do what I want to do when I want to do it. And then I'll come back and get some Jesus when I'm running low. I'd like some Jesus. There's a whole story about a dollar ninety-five of Jesus. Anybody ever heard that one? So I'll just have a dollar ninety-five worth. You know, I don't want the whole bag. I don't want the whole box. Just to give me a dollar ninety-five of Jesus. Just enough to get by. And Jesus says, I'm giving you a living word today, right here. If you don't believe I'm the Messiah and you don't surrender your life to me, then you will die in your sins. It wasn't, this is not a condemning word, but it is judicial. In Revelation chapter 19, it says that he will judge the world and out of his mouth will come a two-edged sword. And that sword will divide between soul and spirit, joints and marrow, And he'll say, you either are a believer or you're not. And we're celebrating Easter. We're celebrating an empty tomb. I am a believer today. How about you? I'm believing in something I can't see. I'm believing in a man I've never touched. Except when I touch you. His body. Let me close in John chapter 20. And I know you'll let me. This is going to be a hard one to write notes for for uh, for cell groups, guys. I'm sorry. I'll do, I'll do my best this afternoon because hopefully you got some good notes. John chapter 20. Let me give you a little fact here. I wrote this one in my Bible. You know, my Bible is so useful. I use it for a dictionary. It's got all the words I need. When I don't know how to spell one, I know where the verse is that's got the word in it, so I go look it up. That's like a dictionary. It's a big help. But here at the bottom of my page, 1599, I wrote this note. It says, chapters 13 through 19 of the Gospel of John represent the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. Did you know that? 13 through 19, John, is the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. And then we come to chapter 20, which is what today's about. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early. While it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. 
that she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him. Peter therefore went out, the other disciple, they were going to the tomb. They both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. Unless, of course, you've seen the skit guys in which Peter denounces that. If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. Stooping down, looking in, they saw the linen cloths lying there, yet they didn't go in. Simon Peter got there, followed him, went right in. That's Peter. Right in. Saw the linen cloths lying there. Handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, that's John, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. And here we have account, 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 account of Jesus risen from the dead. We get to the end of the chapter. Let me read you the last two verses. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's life now and life eternal. These are written. This is that living, alive word from God for us today that says, I'm alive from the dead. I conquered the grave. I'm available. I'm not in the tomb. I'm just outside the tomb waiting for you to find me. You'll be able to spot me. I'm the one with the holes in my hands and the piercing in my side and the scar on my brow from the crown of thorns and the smile on my face because you and I finally get to meet. These are enough for us. Some people say, well, the Bible doesn't have everything we need to know in it. Well, according to this, it's got enough. In another place it says, everything we need for life and godliness is in this book. And when God decides to speak it to us, that living word, it should come and slice between soul and spirit and tell you, are you living a life for Christ or are you just fooling around? And Jesus would warn us and say, listen, if you're just fooling around, I'm telling you, there will come a day when your life will end. And on that day, it will not be the day to make the choice. You've got to believe that I'm him. I am the Messiah. I am the Redeemer. I'm the anointed one. I'm the only one. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. You can't come to the Father unless you come through me. And if you're fooling around with him and saying, well, I'll be kind of a Christian, then Jesus would say, no, you're not one. Christians are believers. They're not posers. Christians are those who have given their whole heart, soul, body, life over to Christ. And do we do it perfectly? No, of course not. That's why 1 John 1, 9 is in the Bible for us. If any man, you know, if we sin, we confess our sin, he's faithful and righteous, he'll forgive us our sin and give us a new start. Some say he's out of a second chance. And listen, I'm on like 10,780. And he just keeps handing it out to me. Give me another chance. And I'm glad because it's going to last until he comes for me or I go to him. But don't be like those who died in the wilderness who said, well, I'll just sort of get by and do it my own way until I'm really in trouble. Don't wait. That's what we need to tell our friends and neighbors. There are no guarantees for tomorrow for anybody. And I'm surprised, aren't you, by some of the people that come up dead. 
That's kind of straightforward, I know, but doesn't it surprise you? You go, oh, they're gone? And then the second thought is, did I ever tell them? Did I ever tell them? Did anyone ever tell them? Are they going to be in heaven forever? Or will that living word have to come down as a judicial moment, a judgment that says, no, they're not in. It's depicted for us many times. Jesus said, you know, the divide, sheep, goats, right hand, the left. It's important today. We don't just go, woohoo, Easter, and then go have lunch. I'm into lunch, though. I'm okay with that. <laughs> have, I, have I been clear enough? If you're fooling around with Jesus, stop it. If you're playing, you're in dangerous territory. If you've ever said, I want to follow Jesus, but I'm not sure how to do it, let's pray together right now. And let's ask him to show us how. You ask him. While I'm praying, you could ask him, Jesus, show me how to be more serious. Show me how to get on the right side of your judicial living word so that I know that I'm saved from hell and I'm saved to life. Lord Jesus, this morning we honor you. You are the risen Savior. We acknowledge you as Lord of Lords, King of Kings, Master of everything. And Father, this morning as we've declared your word, I pray that it will, in fact, right now, be quick and alive, sharper than any two-edged sword. God, that it will pierce right now into the heart, divide between joint and marrow, soul and spirit, and speak to us. Remind us of your love and your life that you want us to have. Draw us back from the edge where we may have been playing on the precipice of danger. Forgive our sin and help us. Show us how to live for you 100%, holding nothing back, surrendering all. Jesus, you promised that if we would lose our life for your sake, we would find it. Help us to find that life that you have for us. And if you need to ask Jesus to forgive your life, forgive your sin, forgive your separation, and you want to trust him right now with everything, just to say this with me, Lord Jesus, I surrender 100% my heart and life to you. My soul man wants one thing. My flesh man wants something. But my spirit says yes to you right now. Forgive my sin. Make me new. Help me to walk in this resurrection life that you have. I don't want to live for myself any longer. I want to find my life in you. Come in to me. Holy Spirit, fill me. Make me hungry for the words of life. Surround me with people who will help me to grow up in Jesus. And I ask these things in his name. Amen. Amen. If you've prayed that simple prayer, God takes you at your word because you want to take him at his. You can hold him accountable.
That's amazing that God lets you do that for him. But he wants to hold us accountable too. So here, let me give you your first accountability. If you prayed that prayer this morning, before you go, you take somebody, grab them by the arm, tap them on the shoulder, say, i got to tell you, I prayed that prayer today. What do I do next? And if you get tapped on the shoulder and you don't know what to tell them, shame on you. <laughs> but we can help you. Amen? Make sure they know what to do next. Let God answer that prayer where he puts you in a circle of people who will help you grow. Who will stand by you when you're falling on your face and not quit loving you. And then you be in a circle of people that love others when they're failing. And I'll bet you this, we'll all make it together. Amen? Thanks for listening to my raspy little tired out 3 o'clock in the morning voice. But I just can't hardly sleep on Easter. God bless you. Tell somebody you prayed that prayer. We'll see you in the life group. Okay? He is risen.